0: That night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her, and yet the tower and the fire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders Podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the
1: North American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I am the editor of the North American Anglican, and today I am joined by both Father Isaac Ray... Deacon... Sorry, Father Isaac Rayburg and Deacon Andrew Razor. Father... Hi, I'm Father Isaac Rayburg, always good to be here on the
0: Miserable Offenders. I'm the uh, rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas, and the canon for liturgy for the Anglican Diocese of the West in Cana.
2: Hey, and I'm Deacon Andrew Brazier, I'm the vicar for the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Pelham, Alabama, and the chancellor for the jurisdiction of the armed forces and chaplaincy for the ACNA. Glad to be here, guys.
1: Awesome. I'm glad to have you guys. And I apologize, uh, Father Rayberg. I almost made you a transitional priest back to Deacon. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's there's a little slip of the tongue there. But um, today we're excited to talk about something we've actually been talking about, wanting to talk about, if that makes sense, uh, for a while, which is Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option. What are you guys uh, looking forward to unpacking the most from this conversation? Well, I had started reading the Benedict Option um,
0: right around the time I was becoming vicar of the parish, um, transitioning from uh, being the the uh, assistant rector to to actually being the, the vicar and then later the rector. And so this is a real it was a really interesting time for me to read it originally, and revisiting it is. Um, is, is going to be very nice after a couple of years sitting in uh, in this office.
2: Yeah, and I guess the, the thing that really gets me the most is how much of a conversation starter it's been for a lot of uh, low church circles, uh, evangelicals, non denominationals, etc. on who is St. Benedict? You know, what is the ancient tradition? And uh, how did we do church, you know, 500, 1,000, even 2,000 years ago? So... It interests me since in this day and age there's a lot of opportunity to engage in uh, church history and also find a way to live it out while also kind of educating our brothers and sisters in Christ who don't come from a liturgical background or come from a very minimal uh, liturgical background.
1: Excellent, yeah. Um, I Those are both good points. My In my sort of returning to the Benedict option in order to prepare for this conversation, I guess I've just been reminded of how much of it I think is just almost plainly true um, and worth recommending to anyone who's any sort of orthodox Christian in our times. And um, also that I I find some of the uh, criticisms of the Benedict Option in my opinion, I don't know what you guys think of this, but I think they very often tell more, tell me more about the person who's giving the criticism than it does about uh, Rod Dreher or the idea itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The, the most common one being this idea that um, he's just calling for a, a um, complete retreat and, um, and you all know, that other sort of thing. And it's plain, if you read the book, that's not the case.
1: And uh, but but you know that's that's the way it goes, <laughs> right? And um, I, I hear plenty of people who I would say are sort of of the I don't know, um, formerly conservative, maybe of the progressive, evangelical, or Catholic world. Who um, they basically just like to label Dreher as a scaremonger, like oh he's making it out to be worse than it really is, and um, boy, you know, from my perspective, I think very often that really just shows how cozy certain people have gotten with uh, the culture. Which, uh, yeah, again, I don't, I don't think that Dreher is being overly alarmist here. I think he's being. Pretty matter-of-fact I agree and for anyone
2: who hasn't read or engaged in any of his works uh, on his blog or in his books you know he's not the type and he never comes out and says the end is not you know take shelter Christians this is it he's not doing any sort of fear-mongering yet some of the works you read about the Benedict option or about his writings Make it to be, make it seem like it's something of that nature, but it it really is not. I think just you hit the, the nail on the head that really, some of these critics, not all of them, because some of them have a lot of good value and insight in additions to the Benedict Option, but for some of them that are just, let's just call them the haters of the Benedict Option, they found find <laughs> nothing redeeming in the work. Um, they're either really not engaging in the actual option that uh, Dreher is proposing, or they're simply saying that he's a fearmonger monger and uh, really attacking him uh, instead of attacking, you know, whether or not this is a valid idea to uh, preserve and to pass on Christian faith.
0: And I think there are some folks that seem to have a bit of a vested interest in um, uh, keeping those connections with, uh, you know, like the religious right political organizations going and that seems to be the kind of thing that Dreher's not a big fan of. Um, you know, really being invested in the in the the greater culture that is
1: an, an against what Christians ought to be doing at times. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, um, especially some of the more vocal critics who have their own platforms, I think that's very much the case. Uh, Dreher's Benedict option really does sort of um, well rather unintentionally, I imagine, um, undermine in various ways what certain people who are, I guess, making money at being Christian ideologues uh, have their own, you know, interests uh, tied up with. Uh, But that being said, uh, if you don't know what the Benedict Option is, then this all sounds very confusing, I'm sure. So... Uh, we decided to sort of uh, review this Benedict Option Frequently Asked Questions article that Rod Dreher actually posted to his blog at the American Conservative um, way back in 2015. Um, Wow, that seems longer ago than I remember it being, because I remember when this article came out. uh, Was that before
0: it? Was that before it was even
1: published, the book? Yes, yeah. this is yeah. before the book. Yeah, which which again goes to show that um, people who've kind of followed Dreher's blog for a while, maybe have gotten most of the substance of the book already, because this <laughs> has been um, this has been a subject and interest that he has been writing about in this forum for years. So, um, that being said. I figure we could go about this in our, um, the miserable offender's way, which is that uh, I'm going to read this first passage and then uh, see what you guys think about it. How's that sound? Sounds great. All right, I'm going to dive in. What is the Benedict option? Start with this famous paragraph from philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre's book, After Virtue. It is always dangerous to draw two precise parallels between one historical period and another, and among the most misleading of such parallels are those which have been drawn between our own age in Europe and North America, and the epoch in which the Roman Empire declined into the Dark Ages. Nonetheless, certain parallels there are. A crucial turning point in the earlier history occurred when men and women of goodwill turned aside from the task of shoring up the Roman imperium and ceased to identify the continuation of civility and moral community with the maintenance of that imperium. What they set themselves to achieve instead, often not recognizing fully what they were doing, was the construction of new forms of community which, within which the moral life could be sustained, so that both morality and civility might survive the coming ages of barbarism and darkness. If my account of our moral condition is correct, we ought also to conclude that for some time now we too have reached the turning point. What matters at this stage is the construction of local forms of community, within which civility and intellectual and moral life can be sustained through the new Dark Ages, which are already upon us. And if the tradition of the virtues was ever to survive the horrors of the last Dark Ages, we are not entirely without grounds for hope. This time, however, the barbarians are not waiting beyond the frontiers, they they have already been governing us for quite some time, and it is our lack of consciousness of this that constitutes part of our predicament. We are not waiting. We are waiting not for a Godot, but for another, doubtless very different Saint Benedict. Gentlemen. Yeah. This, you
0: this,
2: this, yeah go ahead, Father Isaac.
0: Oh, I was just going to say that this is a book I unfortunately have not read, but um, but but yeah, this 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 really sets the stage for the entire conversation, and and I, I'm I'm reminded that that there is one significant difference. Um, this might have been something I heard on issues, et cetera, but I've really stolen it for myself lately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, steal it from the Lutherans. That's that's our that's our uh, our motto here. As one um, does, as one does. Exactly, exactly. But um, the big difference, one of the big differences is that um, Rome was a pagan culture. Ours is an apostate culture. Mm-hmm. That's,
1: That's an interesting also, point, yeah. Um, and and similar to a point that uh, C.S. Lewis makes, um, which is to say that the... Uh, the the neo pagans or sort of of a post Christian culture are not really the same as the actual pagans of a pre Christian culture um, who were imminently convertible as he puts it um, this in a way it does seem that our current culture is kind of um, in important ways inoculated to Christianity because of the sort of uh, remnants of a, in many ways, no longer functioning Christendom.
2: Well, it's kind of akin to dealing with the barbarians uh, who were Aryans. Uh, As I recall, drawing back from a history class many moons ago, the Franks, when they were pagan, were uh, of an Aryan Christianity. And so it's kind of akin to that situation of we're engaging a culture which is our own culture, it's not an outsider culture. It's our own culture has become heretical. They are familiar and were born and bred in Christianity. But interestingly enough, like you put Father Isaac, it's apostate because they're not even claiming to be a form of Christian anymore, like the Arians were. Mm. But they've wholly rejected it. And instead, in today's society, what what I have noticed at least, and many others have, I'm sure, is that People really want to sink their teeth into morality. They'll tell you all day long that you're wrong and tell you that they're right and that what they're doing is for the moral good, but they don't do it based upon any religion necessarily. And So they've rejected the central truths of Christ that provide the moral basis and instead have reduced Christianity to a moralism. And they'll take the moralism, but they'll reject uh, the actual faith and the doctrine itself. So we're in this interesting world where... If you do Christian-speak, you know, or you start coming up with a a conversation of the doctrines of Christ, you immediately get resistance as to whether or not there's any truth of Jesus Christ himself. But then the morality and the teachings, they'll take and run with it all day long for whatever uh, social cause or whatever uh, political system or economic system they want to justify.
0: Which is interesting because that particular morality would not have existed without Christianity I mean that the, the pagans did not have that morality at all I mean even the idea of that um, you know there's there's any sort of intrinsic worth to to people in general was well, just but them you know equal rights anything like that is completely a foreign concept without um, the things that Christianity has done in the West
1: right yeah that's that is a good point Um And I think in a weird way, this shows up in our sort of moral disagreements, or my moral disagreements at least, (laughs) with uh, non-Christians of the post-Christian West in the way that, for instance, I I was recently um, on Facebook having a disagreement with someone. I know, I know. (laughs) Um, And uh, this person objected to... uh, something I posted on the grounds of, well, let me tell you a little secret, buddy. If you don't have to uh, agree with everyone, and if they live or have beliefs that you disagree with, you can just leave them alone as long as they're being good people. And oddly enough, um, he had lots of things to say about what um, apparently being a former Roman Catholic, about how the Catholic Church needs to get with the times and is terrible and, you know, the Bible doesn't say any of the things that people think it does, et cetera, et cetera. He had no problem sort of speaking on behalf of Christianity in a way, even as an explicit atheist. And I think that's kind of one of the weird features of um, a post-Christendom scenario. Which is that you get the barbarians, so to speak, in charge, but they all feel like they can sort of speak on behalf of Christianity too. You know, if that makes sense. There's there's this sort of like, oh, uh, they're gonna go apologize to um, everyone else, you know, who's been offended by um, Christian civilization, even though they themselves are representative of sort of the removal of anything Christian about our civilization. Um, So it's odd, I find that, you know, secularists in in this context sort of want to have their cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. And um, which makes, you know, disagreements even the more, uh, all the more perplexing. But again, the uh, perplexing nature of moral disagreements is exactly what McIntyre's book is all about. Um, All that being said, who wants to uh, read that short little paragraph next and uh, just open that up for um, the next round of uh, discussion? Because I think he gets into some interesting ideas there. Yeah, I'll take that up. Thank you.
2: The Benedict Option refers to Christians in the contemporary West who cease to identify the continuation of civility and moral community, The maintenance of American empire, and who therefore are keen to construct local forms of community, is loci of Christian resistance against what the empire represents. Put less grandly, the Benedict option or BenOp is an umbrella term for Christians who accept McIntyre's critique of modernity and who also recognize that forming Christians who live out of Christianity, excuse me, and also recognize that forming Christians who live out Christianity according to the great tradition requires embedding within communities and institutions dedicated to that formation
1: yeah I, I think that bit about embedding within communities and institutions is uh, is really where sort of the the meat of the Benedict option lies and and it, it's related to this idea within McIntyre which is basically, um, we have all these crumbling institutions all around us that no longer serve the function they were established to serve. They no longer um, are capable of promoting virtue because the people running them either aren't agreed as to what morality is or what would constitute right action, but um, or else they sort of have a deeply anti-christian uh, view that's that actually goes directly against what um institutions like universities or uh, formerly Christian denominations etc <laughs> um, so you have yeah we have this situation where people seem to be interested in Investing in institutions that are probably going to be much smaller and we could say homespun even that actually do what, what a Christian institution should do. Now Jesse, you teach for a Christian school, is that, is that right? Yes, um, Yeah, I teach philosophy at a classical Catholic high school. And um, I, yeah, I definitely see what we're doing there as, as very much a Benedict Option movement. Um, we have parents bringing their kids in who, many of whom were formerly homeschooled. And, um, you know, the only reason why you bring your kids to a... School that's Catholic and classical is because the public schools or even the parochial Catholic schools maybe are not such that you think that they're actually going to um, help your child in in the uh, growing in their faith. Um, you know, and actually, very often these parents think that it would do the opposite, that it would, and so. It gets into this idea of um, in a society where the institutions that we're surrounded by can no longer be relied upon to sort of bolster a generally Christian worldview. What's being taught at home is being sort of promoted in other locations as well, which really, I think, is part of the communal catechesis for young people people and people in general, um, not only are they not necessarily promoting Christianity or a Christian point of view, but very often they're detrimental to it, even institutions that are, uh, yeah, Christian on paper.
0: Our kids are still very young. Um, One just turned four and the other one is just turned four months. But, um, yeah, when our first uh, daughter was born... My wife and I talking, yeah, we, we decided right away we, we are not going to be able to trust our kids to the, the public institutions um, and we would have to look very hard for um, a trustworthy Christian institution because we, we've got Christian schools you know, coming out of our ears in this town, but not all of them w- would I trust with either the educational or moral, certainly not religious formation of our daughters.
2: Yeah, and I like to step in and say because this is something that's been going through my wife and my mind for quite some time. We've got young kids too, uh, five and about to be a two-year-old. And what has kind of driven me through through my blogging um, and my kind of focus ever since I started having kids is how to form your own children. And really, the Benedict Option is kind of a reflection of you know how we raise our own families. Uh, I mean, the Benedict Option. In its essence, it inter- interacts and inter- not interferes, but interacts and helps formulate a plan for how you raise your own families, much less how you engage in society. And for us, it's helped me to realize that for far too long, we as a society just simply try to let you know communal education, you know, uh, public education actually raise our children for us to a certain extent—not completely, not wholly—but we hmm. give far too much deference on much of the formation of our children to to the teachers. And uh, and it's probably a reason why teachers are so frustrated. I've got many friends who are teachers because their children aren't being raised uh, by their own parents, and they essentially become babysitters. There's a lot of failures in our system and in our society. But before I digress too much, what has helped me in, in reading about the Benedict Option realize is that, look, we are responsible for the raising of our children in the faith, the catechesis, which, if a listener, if you're not familiar with the word, it's the teaching, the teaching of the faith. And so when it comes to raising our families and uh, being good parents to uh, young Christians who will one day, Lord willing, be confirmed into the church, it is important and crucial that we find ways and we create ways to make sure that they are learning the faith. Uh, the f- simple basis of the book of God of Prayer is that Anyone who's going to be confirmed and and receive communion will know the commandments, uh, know the creed, the Apostles' Creed, and uh, know the Lord's Prayer. And that's really just kind of a basis, a simple foundation uh, for the basic faith that we have. Uh, But as parents, we are especially challenged to make sure that the way our kids are educated in society and the way our kids learn how to act, how to behave, how to take up the mantle of being a Christian, is something that we pass on to them because no one else is going to do it for us and society is going to do everything they can to strip away and to introduce them into the ways of the world um, and all that being said it's also very delicate because like you said father isaac there's plenty of, of christian institutions or schools or forms of education that have the label christian but you've got to be careful because you could end up having your your child you know raised in a, a faith altogether different than the, uh, the very Christianity you're trying to raise them into, or have the opposite effect of having a, a stripped-down education that's sheltering your children from you know basic concepts that are not foreign or not anti-Christian, but because of a particular philosophy, they're not teaching you the full gamut of, of the sciences or the arts, uh, whatever it may be.
0: Yeah, the uh, you you kind of and this is this has very much been the focus of your blog, Andrew. But uh, you you mentioned the um, the uh, Book of Common Prayer as as being really good for this, and um, and I, I do think that that's an area where where as Anglicans we have a built-in um, Benedict option already, at least on yeah. the, the family level. You know, and and it's been pointed out many times that the prayer book has its roots in Benedictine spirituality. Um, it, it really forms almost a rule of life in of itself for for regular folk, not not just monks and uh, there's this quote in in the third chapter of the book and this is a little bit of a field of what we were going to do but I, I have it here that I, I, I thought was really good when I was reading it the first time um, you know regarding the idea of the rule of Saint Benedict and we can apply this to to just the prayer book lifestyle as well. You know, he he writes, um, despite the very specific instructions found in the rule, it is not a checklist for legalism. And then he quotes um, a Benedictine priest here who says, "The purpose of the rule is to free you." That's a paradox
1: that people don't grasp readily. Yeah, that's interesting, um, and absolutely one of the paradoxes of of Christianity of. Of life and you know human existence in general, um, especially with regard to the virtues, which is so important to uh, to uh, McIntyre's original book. And I think it, the prayer book is is so it's hard to describe even to someone who's not deeply familiar with the prayer book tradition just what it is that is so captivating and special um, about it. But you know, I, I have a, a, a Lutheran pastor friend who was like, you know, you, you agree with us on a, on a lot of significant things. Why don't you just uh, jump ship? You know, <laughs> it make <laughs> life easier. And uh, and one of the things that I pointed to is I said, you guys don't have the Book of Common Prayer, right? And I mean, you you probably could use it. You know, um, it, whether whether they would or not, you know, it's up to up to our Lutheran brothers and sisters. But um, what it does, and, and one of the key ways that I think it's so um, essential to this Benedict Option um, conversation, is that it's this organic tie between various institutions or uh, what, what Luther would call estates, right? You have the estate of the home, you have the estate of the church. and then you have the sort of public estate. And if you think about um, say, you know uh, the Church of England in its heyday, and how so much so many different families would use the Book of Common Prayer, um, morning and evening prayer, litany and so forth, um, in their daily devotional lives, whether uh, in the closet, so to speak, or um, leading you know, services for their household, including um, servants, if it was a big household, um, and children and so on. But also carry the same prayer book um, up to the local parish and mm-hmm. use the same volume uh as the service of holy communion and the sacrament is being conducted and then you know to be um to have state ceremonies and to have a priest present right and to have like the all all of the different areas of life being bound together by this sort of singular rule of life that is um sort of, it, it moves fluidly back and forth between the uh, the highest uh, ceremony of the most beautiful um, cathedral and then back into your living room or, or a place where you like to study the Bible in private. And I think that is just such a, a unique product of the greatest um, features of the Middle Ages and the Reformation and this sort of practical sensibility that, um, boy, unless you've really spent time and and years, you know, with the prayer book, it's hard to describe to the outsider. Um, And so, yeah, I I think that especially in those ways that um, it's able to tie together these various sort of instituted areas of life that we all occupy um, really does make the prayer book a special and uh, especially useful tool in ordering a Christian life.
0: I saw, I've seen this work in a couple of really interesting ways um, in, in my own family uh, you know, through parish life. You know, I, I, As I mentioned, my oldest is four and we, we bought her a prayer book pretty much early on. And of course, she can't read it yet, but she insists on having her physical prayer book if we're doing family prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, She she knows the services just from being around them, and um, to to the the point where the, uh, the the adults are surprised that a four year old knows these things. It's just, I mean, it hasn't been particularly intentional. It's just she's been around them and at the same time on the other side of the coin my father who grew up with the 1928 prayer book but hadn't used it since he was a teenager um, when, they, when they switched over to, to the new liturgies he came back when he visited our parish the first time um, it all immediately came back to him you know the, the same, the same uh, uh, settings from Murbeck and, and wow. everything like that I mean it
1: was, it was as if he never left and it had been decades that's cool yeah, I remember um, leading uh, evening prayer uh, with some guests who we used to have over regularly. And it was, my son was not able to read, but he loved to point out all the O's. Uh, <laughs> and, and in the 28 prayer book, especially uh, in the Psalter, there are a lot of lines that start with a big O. It's like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, um, That's excellent. Yeah, it was pretty funny. But... Yeah, I think that it's fascinating, and this really gets into the whole, uh, the essential element of ritual and and lit- the liturgical being that humans are, whether we realize it or not. And I think this gets to this idea um, that Dreher has of the importance of these sort of deep, embedded liturgical traditions within communities um we're not gonna the chances that a person is going to stick to their guns when it matters the most um by going it solo are just not good they're not as good especially if you care about your kids as if you're practicing these things as a community and they see that ah all the people i know all the people who I respect, all the people my parents respect, and their friends, they participate in these these traditions as well, um, and we do it liturgically and we do it as a group. And I can tell you um, from experience, as someone who grew up in a more uh, Pentecostal environment, where certainly the 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 faith and the belief of at home was devout and my parents believed what they believed, but without um, really a robust community outside of the home and maybe church on Sundays, but without sort of these intermediate institutions where certain practices were being observed by, I don't know, someone besides mom and dad, It didn't take long for me as a young man to sort of realize like this whole religion thing is kind of just a private thing that mom and dad are into and really Mm -hmm. none of my teachers believe any of this and if these are the people i'm supposed to be learning uh some of the most important things from then why should i trust mom and dad over them and of course that kind of questioning becomes even more potent when you add uh, adolescence and everything that that entails as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the other thing is is that when you see even fellow church members, you know, when we treat our religion across the board as being an internal private affair and uh, simply something that we just kind of cling a hold to instead of living out and having a, a full engagement with our lives, it's easy especially as someone who's uh, young and being raised in the faith to look at it and just say okay so this is really just kind of a, a private option just like you know do I like coke or pepsi you know do I prefer you know, <laughs> sports or you know something different you know do I you know, what is my preferences in life when it becomes merely a flavor to choose to savor you know, or to reject because you don't savor it then it very quickly goes from being a religion to really more of a social club you go to uh, once a week, which is really what much of Christianity has, has turned into. Uh, even here in the, in the Bible Belt in the Deep South, I've seen how we've just simply become, uh, instead of culturally, uh, well there's cultural Christians, but instead of being continuously in church, worshiping, and going out and serving on uh, Sundays, Sunday evenings, Wednesday nights, and other days of the week... It's just a one day affair. And even then, that gets difficult because, oh, you know, little Billy, he's got his ball game, and they're playing ball games mm. now on Sundays, so we're going to have to miss out this week. And it purely becomes just an optional exercise uh, to even attend a church.
1: Yeah, that's, um, boy, cultural sort of creep into what used to be sort of sacred space for the normal household is, is no joke. I mean, and that ball games on Sunday is, is, yeah, that is a real thing. And it seems so innocent in a way. It's like, oh, well, it's just, it's just Little League or whatever, you know. But um, yeah, what, what I'm sort of surprised, and, and this sort of relates to, uh, you know, Father Isaac talking about um, you know, how easily little kids can sort of make the, the prayer traditions of, of the grown-ups their own. But I'm also actually have been impressed by how my own kids sort of take our peculiarities in the name of Christ um, in stride. And um, they're like, oh, well, we're, so we're different that way because we're Christians? Okay cool you know they just sort of <laughs> you know they're uh especially you know my son who's older um he's eight now he's he just sort of accepts it like oh and you know we have these conversations like so so and so doesn't go to church um uh you know so what does that mean what does that what kind of person are they You know, <laughs> like like okay that's that's an enormous question that we have to unpack and you know which inevitably he gets bored with the answer before I'm done. But, you know, all, <laughs> all, all of that is to say that there is a certain childlike trust that we can, um, I think, be confident in. And, uh, you know, if, if you were a rebellious teenager like I was, then you, you maybe have more fear and trepidation over sort of pushing the peculiarity and the uh, the weirdness of Christianity too hard on the kids. And I think the truth is, is that they really, you know, they're, they're hardwired to trust mom and dad. Especially if your home life is a caring home life and you are a source of life and uh, love for them. Um, they're gonna trust you until you give them a good reason not to. Mm. And um, we don't have to be So careful, maybe, or as careful as sometimes I, I think I accidentally are or am, you know, but um, yeah, they really do sort of like, oh, okay, we do things differently. We're not gonna have baseball, you know. I'm not gonna see the guys today or whatever, you know. Well, all right. So they'll usually,
0: they'll usually, if yeah, if if you have a good, loving family environment where this is just the way we do things. The, the, the way that the teenager's rebellion, we'll put it in quotes, will go is going to be a lot more innocuous, uh, you know, listening to weird music or, <laughs> you know, strange hairstyles, uh, you know, things like that. And I, and I say that from the book that, that my brother and sister and I wrote rather than <laughs> the one we read. Because, nice. I mean, yeah, I mean, the the, the religious upbringing, you know, the, those core things were, were not something that were, we're departed from. Um, You know, it was it was really the, uh, you know, not in the teenage years at all. It it was really silly, superficial things that that don't really matter. Mm
2: -hmm. And and to me, it kind of brings up a good point because you talked about Father Isaac being a good, loving family, which sadly, because of the crumbling of the foundations of our society, you know, you don't have a, a father figure, and if you do, it's not necessarily a good father figure. In your life it really speaks more to how uh those of us who are practicing christians need to be more aware of of who's currently in our congregation who uh you know who's a young person who doesn't have you know a a fatherly mentor Uh, you can't replace the father figure but may need that mentoring Hmm. uh, and that help to form the culture because Uh, I can't imagine being a single parent. You know, God bless those um, who are in that situation. Um, The older I get, the more it aches my heart uh, to see, you know, that happening because that's a lot of stress, you know, for one person to go through to be a parent. And so something that's been speaking through my heart recently is how we as Christians need to see what we can do, you know, uh, engage with the parent. Like, how can I be of assistance? Uh, And it may be as simple as just making sure, you know, that, Uh, The young ones, you know, are involved in the church, you know, in in the right programs, whether or not it's the youth group, whether or not it's a confirmation class. Just make sure that child or those children aren't being ignored so that we can form them into the faith so that when they go through their own additional struggles in life, they'll still be able to go back and say, you know what, I may have my doubts or I may be going through a tough time. But that Apostles' Creed is in my mind. You know. The yeah. words of the Lord's Prayer are stuck there because somebody made sure that I made it in a church, and I hear, heard those prayers and learned that creed. And so even in the toughest times of life, when I don't know where to go to, I can go to the Psalms. I can go to a prayer. I can go to the, the prayers of the liturgy and, and be refreshed or find comfort. Um, I know for my own personal life, that's something that I, I do. And uh, I don't know. How I'd be where I'm at now without having the ability to fall upon the grace of the prayers of our fathers before us uh, that really guide us in terms of what is the faith, uh, what is our duty in this life.
0: And that speaks to a very Benedictine concept as well. Um, you know, there, there's going to be no silver bullets for uh, for spiritual formation. There's going to be no spirit, silver bullets for. Growing the uh, your your youth program or your children's program or your adult education program, it really it really becomes long processes. Um, You know that revisiting the Psalms monthly, if you're following the prayer book's way of doing things, um, hearing that story of Jesus again and again every year as you walk through the church year, um, going through that catechism. Question and answer, question and answer, uh, and and seeing these things through week in and week out, um, that's that's how formation happens. Um, you know, a big event might be fun, but formation doesn't happen in big events. And too often in in Christianity today, we think if we have a big
1: event, that that's gonna that's gonna be what makes all the difference. Yeah. You're absolutely that, right. That's a good point. I think it gets at what Dreher means when he says uh, practices in embedded in communities, uh, drawing from the great tradition. There's a sense in which uh, we as Christians need to know our own story. We need to be familiar with our own liturgies, our own confessions. And if we Lean on the wisdom of the ages. There's a there's a good amount of trusting the process, so to speak, that um, is not really a new new advice. It's just sort of traditional advice for a new situation, which might be you know one way of looking at the Benedict option. Um, on top of that, I think we need to. There, there's another another passage from the book where Drera mentions <laughs> this one slogan uh, of Hillary Clinton's that I remember my parents sort of railing against in the 90s. <laughs> where, I remember uh, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, where, you know, I, I remember just as a kid. And, and, and she says, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And, um, of course, if you're, you know, uh, a conservative Christian... And you look out at the village in your actual locale. Things might that might be a pretty terrifying prospect, you know. Right. Um, you you don't know who your neighbors are, and if you do, then that might make it even worse. <laughs> you'd be better. You'd think better of them if you knew less about them. Um, but what Dreher is getting at is that it does, in a real way, take a Christian village, in the sense that. Um, Whether you're a single parent um, or not, none of us can really be doing this well in isolation. And the whole reason why institutions exist is to sort of be middle spaces for flourishing within a society. And if your institutions have failed, then you need those middle spaces somewhere. Your kids need to have other Christian friends. You know, they need to see other um, other peers interacting with their parents in uh, a good and holy way and sort of learn from their examples as well. And so I think that that really, that whole idea really gets to um, sort of what's at stake in the Benedict Option. Okay. And part of that, you know, means, it might mean, you know, having to spend money to send your kids to school. Or having to take off work to homeschool or start a classical co-op or something. I mean, one thing that, you know, is difficult about this is is that you don't have to be a rich person (laughs) to be a Christian who cares about your children. And many people who are interested in the Benedict Option are going to find that it takes some real sacrifices. And um, that's the sort of thing that you know Andrew when you're talking about uh, the single parent i think anybody who's in this struggle we as the church need to start thinking about our congregation as you know people who are in this struggle together with us and exactly and if we see somebody it, just just assume that you know they could use some uplift <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you, you probably don't even need to wait and find out
2: you know, and that's where, you know, the Benedict option and action could be at your local parish. You know, really, two points I want to make is that the people that we see in our parish, it's so easy, and I'm guilty of doing it for years, of just like showing up and then, quote, doing church. And then we all tell each other and pat each other on the back that, yeah, we're the church, you know, and we're going to go out and be the church. And that's not what happens at all. You know, we come to this event that we call, you know, going to church on Sunday. We listen, you know, to the sermon, and then we go out, and we don't really form community with the people who we are attending church with, and that's something that's got to fundamentally change for Christians, you know. It is impossible to be a Christian alone, and yet we live in this age in which we're all connected through podcasts, through social media, through everything else, and when we attend the local neighborhood church that we attend, we don't even know our neighbor, uh, who's sitting mm-hmm. next to us, or if we know the people on the pew, we certainly don't know anyone who's on the across the, the room in a different pew. And that has got to change. We have got to be a community of individuals who see that the value of being a Christian is loving our neighbor. And loving our neighbor has got to start the local parish. So that way we can develop the culture to even develop a Benedict option in the first place so that we can raise our family in environments that demonstrate not only the doctrine of the gospel, but living out uh, the doctrine of the gospel in our lives. And, uh, and I'll say, like my family, what we've decided to do is send our kids to uh, public schools, and I'm sure a lot of parents, especially single parents, are in that situation where they're working so they can't do a home school or they won't be able to afford a private school, and so we have got to intentionally be there for those brothers and sisters whose children uh, are there uh, in schools. And of course, not all public schools are created equal. Some are much better than others. But to make sure that for those who are attending uh, public schools uh, who are not in a Christian environment or a worldview are receiving that support through other outside means, whether or not it's you know, forming some sort of uh, campus ministry, whether or not it's making sure that the children are attending a Wednesday service, a youth group service, whatever it may be, but being intentional about uh, keeping our children uh, in a catechesis that is weekly. That's not simply, we'll do a program for a few weeks here and do something, you know, for summer camp over there. We don't need to entertain our children, we need to raise them, train them, disciple them, and, uh, you know, different from indoctrinating them, but raise them in such a manner that they get it. They see that there's a difference between being a Christian and simply being anything else in this world. Because if Christianity looks like Coke versus the world is Pepsi it's just a flavor preference, then it's really gonna be no competition. You're you're gonna choose what you like at the end of the day. Instead of seeing that, no, this is an objective truth, this is a way of life that we are raised into, that we are called upon to engage with. There's a big difference between the discipleship and the entertaining. And right now I think the majority of our churches in America err on the side of entertaining to keep the children, you know, the youth attending. And then what happens, they realize that, hey, the world's a lot better at entertaining than what the church is and we lose the youth and we wonder why did they go off because the world can do a lot better rock concert than the church can i mean that's just reality and that's not what the church is called to do and called to be
1: yeah that's really well said and i'll just draw a line in the sand and say that coke is objectively better than pepsi Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so let let that sort of swim around in your noggins and uh but I'll turn it over to to Father Rayburg. Any any sort of uh, final final uh, thoughts on this? And and I think I don't know. We should probably revisit the Benedict option, gentlemen. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's there, there is so much to unpack here. Even even
0: in the article, we barely touched it. So um, which which is which is good because the conversation has been has been wonderful. Um, yeah, I I, 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 really like what what you were saying, Andrew, about getting you know, the intentionality, um, showing why this is that that formation, and and, and there's something about um, the traditions of the church that is both that, that can be both intentional and organic, and and I think having having both of those elements is, is really important. Because something that's just artificial and intentional tends to reek of, you know, kind of a more marketing sort of way of doing things, and and, you know, and that's 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 what we see too often in the church is, is this thought that if we, yeah, if we do the, the, um, the glitzy marketing whether that's, um, you know, our, our, our rock concert or our, or our program or um, this super event that's going to change your life. Well, none, none of that's true. But the church, whether it's a little church or a big church, what the church can do better than the world is give you silence that's directed towards God, give you a place of contemplation um, that, that, and, and, and meditation that drives you to your creator rather than to yourself um, you know that's that's what the church is designed for um, being different from the world in the
1: best possible of ways hmm. well said yep I agree well I think uh, we should yeah we'll definitely have to revisit these themes uh, again soon but that will have to be it for today thank you so much for uh, listening And uh, as always, we look forward to uh, hearing from our listeners any feedback you have about this episode or one from the archives. Please let us know. And goodbye. Until next time.
2: Have a good one.
0: It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to to rebuild it one day, when we have served and suffered a while, it was longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at n-o-r-t-h-a-m-anglican.com.